Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to The Futurist with your host, Ben Rohde and Alex Lightman. Each week, we feature a specific aspect of our collective future with action steps you can take to make your own future better and brighter. Our guest experts are top futurists in their field who will remind you that anything is possible. Give us 90 minutes and we'll give you the future. Hi, this is Alex Lightman. I'm here with Ben Rohde, my co-host, and today we're going to talk about the future under of the United States under a Trump presidency. I think this is uh, pretty exciting, and I think that there's probably few things that have caught people more off guard and um, by surprise than Donald Trump actually becoming uh, president of the United States. And one of the things that I find fascinating is that to some extent we have a, a sort of a cheat sheet of what he's going to do because he's already put out what he's pledged to do in his first 100 days in office. And so Ben and I will be going through that list and talking about what we think of each of these items. And also, of course, uh, we're, you know, we reserve the right to talk about whatever we want at any time during the call, um, during the show. So um, here's a list of what he's said he was going to do. The first thing he says on his list is propose a constitutional amendment to impose term limits on all members of Congress. And he said that uh, he would, the term limits would be three terms for Congress, uh, you know, a House of Representatives, and that would be six years since each term is two years, and two terms for the Senate, which would be 12 years. What I like about that is it would mean that there wouldn't be any more brain-dead 99-year-old reanimated corpses. However, it would also um, kick out people like Bernie Sanders, who has been there quite a while. Uh, interestingly, Bernie was an independent and only became a Democrat just under two years ago. So um, I like the idea of term limits. Uh, the, the basic idea is that you wouldn't have people who, because of the 90-plus percent re-election rate of Congress, are not really in free elections, and so therefore they don't actually know – they don't have to care about their constituents. They can just simply kick back and take money from lobbyists uh, for doing favors for them. And an example of an illegitimate use of Congress is when under George Bush and under uh, Republican um, – basically controlled Congress, you had uh, the members of Congress vote that ExxonMobil didn't have to pay taxes. Now, there's no actual justification for just picking a company that gives you donations and saying, yeah, they don't have to pay taxes. And the idea that you have people waiting in the wings to take over and, and free, competitive, open elections every six years in every single congressional district in the United States and every time you have an open seat, it's, it's, it's a nail-biter to see who will win. Um, and every 12 years in every Senate seat, 
that will open up the political process and it will force each party to have a deep bench of a lot of people. So if we look at the Democratic Party right now, they built so much of their party around the Clinton dynasty that now that that dynasty has been ended, just like the Bush dynasty has been ended for the Republicans, uh, they have to cast about and say, okay, who, you know, they have to cast a wider net for more people. Uh, ben, what, what do you think of this, uh, this amendment to uh, have term limits for members of Congress? Oh, man. Um, I, well, I don't, I, don't, I don't know who's going to argue this aside from the people that would be getting kicked out. It's, it's, it's been kind of a monopoly and it's been kind of insane. Um, and, you know, you're, you're, the, you're the pro about all this. I've, I've got some of the higher dimensional information. You know, I'm, I'm kind of I'm focused on the big picture and what Trump means for society and all that stuff. So. Oh, well, then great. Then let's, <laughs> then let's start with that. Let's go there. I cool. want to well, say let, one let me... more thing about this, uh, this okay. term limit, yeah. and that is that normally people could say, yeah, he's not going to get it done. Let's say it was 50-50 governors were Democrat versus Republican. But Trump comes in with a, a royal flush. He's got the White House. He's got uh, the House of Representatives. He has the, uh, the Senate. He has the ability to immediately appoint a justice to the Supreme Court who is a deciding vote. The person who, who left, Scalia, uh, is, uh, you know, basically died uh, under mysterious circumstances. Um, <laughs> uh, is, and, it, and it's astonishing to me that Obama hasn't made more of an effort, like really put his foot down about appointing somebody to the Supreme Court because uh, it's just incredible that he would leave a spot open for Donald Trump to um, put a person immediately in office. And, and this is the piece de resistance. So you've got the White House. That's one. You've got the House of Representatives. That's two. You've got the Senate. That's three. You've got the Supreme Court. That's four. But he's got five, you know, because we're talking five cards here. And he's got the majority of the governors. Now, why does that matter? It matters because he has enough governors to have a constitutional convention and change the uh, constitution. And this is important because congressmen are not going to vote to be a kicked out of their, their sweet, sweet jobs. I mean, what other job can you make millions of dollars for a few months worth of full-time equivalent and, and have an IQ below 80? I mean, I don't know of any other job like that. And, you know, and be a hundred years old and do it. Uh, so the governor's, uh, he, he doesn't need Congress, and he doesn't need the Senate, and he doesn't need the Supreme Court to have a constitutional convention. He just needs the governors to have their states agree, and he can do that. So, um, so where tell me, tell us about the the higher dimensional information about the Trump presidency. All ears. Okay, so I'm I've been wanting to write a, a, a article about the pros the potential pros and the potential cons. And, you know, there are a lot of pros in this, this list, this hundred point list. There are a lot of pros in here, a lot of really good stuff. And I've seen every single president that's ever come in, have a list of really good things that they claim they're going to do and then they don't do it. Right. So is he going to do this? I don't know. Um, and the, one of the things that weirds me out a little bit is how about a year ago, Obama said 
I'm, he said, I'm not even office if, if Trump gets elected. He basically said, if, if Trump gets elected, uh, I'm staying. Um, and right now, he's, he's saying, I'm, I'm looking forward to helping Trump with a smooth transition. There's just, there's something, I'm not, I'm not really trusting it. There's something I'm not trusting. And, you know, Trump talking about, uh, you know, getting lobbyists out of, out of Washington and, and, or the, you know, lobbyists with the, with, with interests that, that may be uh, not, it, oh God, I don't know. There's so much going on right now. Um, I'm, I'm having a hard time collecting my thoughts, um, but I, I'm not really like, so there was, all, of course, all the racism is freaking me out, right? The racism going on in the U.S. freaking me out. There's all kinds of hate. It's like the, uh, the U.S.'s shadow has been exposed. It's, it's, it's almost like we've, we've had this, this, um, this, this cancer in our, in our body, racism. And now we've just received the, di the diagnosis. We didn't quite, you know, it was like, I knew something was off. And, you know, but now it's like we've received the diagnosis. And so I, I've, been, I've been holding out hope that, that Trump will come out and say, hey, guys, look, you know, um, that was a, it was a big show. I, I wanted to get elected. So I, you know, kind of, I, I, I pulled the reality TV show uh, um, actor thing and, you know, but I, we, I actually do want to make a difference and I want all of us to, to, to live a better life. And, you know, that includes, that includes black people. <laughs> that includes the Muslims that are here legally and that are, that are uh, an active part of our society and let's cut back on the, the racism and hate crimes. And, and, you know, I love that he held up the LGBTQ T sign and, or a flag. Like there's, it's, it's, it's like, it's impossible to know what's actually going to happen. And so this is why like even going through this hundred point plan is, um, you know, I, I think it's, it's going to be a fun, a fun thing to do. And only time will tell. I mean, I, I voted for Obama first term, and he didn't do a lot of the stuff that he said he was going to do. And, uh, so I, I, I don't know. Um, anyway, let's, that's all I've got for now. Let's, let's get back to the, the plan. I think that's a good structure. How about, how about this? I'll read them and, and I'll let you talk about them. Okay. Or do you want to say something on what I just said? No, that's fine. No, go ahead. Uh, okay. um, well, we all uh, – it's possible – for, so let's look at the demographics. There's about 336 million people in the United States, assuming that there's not serious undercounting like there is in China. So there's this BS that's propagated by both China and the CIA colluding with each other that China's population is a mere 1.375 million people, and it's stayed about that same for a very long time. In fact, China's population is more like 1.75 million. They undercount it by 400 million. You know, I don't think the United States is undercounting by more than uh, undercounting or overcounting by more than 10 million, but it's about 336 million, and there are about 40 million African Americans, and there are about 40 million Hispanics, uh, people of Hispanic descent, and so 
each of those groups is certainly capable of shutting down the United States. There are about 6 million Jews, 6 million Muslims, and those are also capable of shutting down the United States, though, of course, they would use entirely different tactics to do it. So no, no leader who wants to have stability for business, and right now, yeah. um, I think it's worth pointing out something. Trump actually has something to lose. It's very funny, but quote-unquote, the fake Nobel Prize, there are real Nobel Prizes given out by the Nobel Stiftung, which is a Swedish name, and then there's a fake prize that's the Nobel Memorial Prize that people just conveniently forget the memorial, which is just simply the Bank of Stockholm paying a bribe and being able to slap a moniker on it to sort of make economists seem like real scientists when they are absolutely not. It's very funny studying economics at MIT where people say, by the way, this isn't really a science, and you have all these Nobel laureates there. So um, Paul Krugman, Nobel laureate, writing for the New York Times, said – that the, the stock market would crash under a Trump presidency and it would never recover. And as of today, it's at record highs. So the business community is expecting really good stuff for business and right. riots and people shutting down the inner core of New York City, which would be the easiest way to paralyze the American economy, would do that. So you, can't, you, cannot, uh, you cannot have policies that are so nasty or policies that are explicitly racist without having protests that hurt business. And there's nobody who's going to want to support that. And right now, um, Donald Trump has to look very carefully at one thing. He's good for business, but not one, to the best of my knowledge, not one of the Fortune 100 CEOs, the top biggest people in the country, endorsed him. Yeah. And I think that this is just a, it shows an inc- uh, the, how incredibly dumb business leaders are because if they thought he was going to win, they would have endorsed him because it would be good for their, con- their, their country. Just look at Peter Thiel. He might be heading the transition team and being able to make all these decisions about all kinds of things. He has extraordinary influence because he was the most prominent person in Silicon Valley to do it. So I, I just want to say that – I keep hearing about how – I've been hearing it for years, what a genius Mark Zuckerberg is and what a genius Sergey Brin is and Eric Schmidt and all these people. And the fact is none of them actually knew how to build a model that would look at reality and predict a Trump presidency. And as a person who's been making correct predictions for 30 years and predicted that Trump would win and also predicted Brexit would win, these are the kind of things that are – they don't take um, – I don't need the resources of those companies, and even with those resources, they didn't get it. So that tells me that they don't really know what's going on. And thus, what we say in this show and what we figure out is likely to be just as true as anything they're going to predict. So I can see that that a Trump presidency would be one in which he is overwhelmed by complexity, and he just simply goes and focuses like he kind of pulls his horns in and focuses on what he knows. And what he knows is how to make deals and how to make money and how to how to not uh how to make effectively real estate deals. Now, how can you destroy the real estate market in America? You have interest rates go up. You have interest rates explode because then People are going to all of a sudden have these mortgages go out of reach, and then the demand for real estate will collapse. And if it collapses, since 20% of Americans move every year, it's going to be harder to staff up and everything else. 
And there's so many, uh, so many treasury bonds that were bought by the United States for itself. Like there was a period of time, I haven't looked at it lately, but 57% of all the treasury bonds under Obama cumulatively were bought by the Federal Reserve. And you know how the Federal Reserve can do it? It has credit. You know what the credit of the Federal Reserve is? The United States. So effectively, it's, it's, it's not an arm's length transaction. It's self-dealing. It's the kind of thing that if a company got credit and then bought its own bonds and did that over and over into the to, to, you know, tens of trillions of dollars, uh, it would be a disaster because eventually it would crumble. And that's a problem. And a bigger problem is that this year, this year is the year that China has a workforce that peaks. So China has been a reliable source of credit, and um, Donald Trump is going to label – we're going to get to this – but label China a currency manipulator. Well, then China's currency manipulator. Do you know how they manipulate their currency? By buying U.S. dollars and by – uh, by buying U.S. Treasury bonds, and so basically that uh, you know it makes makes their currency lower. So if you don't want them to do that, well then they just sell dollars and they sell the Treasury bonds, and then that makes all the imports that we do because we're a, a massive trillion dollar plus a year net importer. And so in other words, the Trump plan overall has uh, has pissed people off because it seems like it's directed at hurting certain minority groups, number one, and two, hurting certain nations. And if he actually follows through on either of those things or even keeps up the same rhetoric, the, the inner cities where business is done can be shut down, and that would hurt business. And the people who have been buying dollars in treasury bonds and giving us $20 trillion for free for, for just blips on the screen – nothing, pieces of paper in some cases, then they can destroy our economy. So we've never been in a situation where if he just keeps his mouth shut and plays nice, then everything will go fine. But if he's, you know, become, if he stays a rhetorical Tasmanian devil, then, then he will see how truly interdependent and in, interconnected the world is. And he has the most to lose of anyone on earth right now because the stock market is a record high, and so any time that the stock market goes down from this point on, it's on him. And he's never been in that situation before in his life, and I don't even think he conceived of it. So how, how is he going – how could – in your opinion, how could he keep the stock market at a record high? I mean, is, is the U.S. a bubble? Does it have to collapse at some point? Does it have to go back down? How can, how can that happen responsibly? I, I love that question, and I've actually studied it deeply. So what Great. you had – let's look at the most famous bubble of all, the, the tulip bubble. We could also say the South Seas bubble, but I want to speak the tulip bubble for a reason. Um, so the tulip bulb craze in the Netherlands led to people paying the equivalent of the price of a house for certain tulip bulbs, which, by the way, don't last forever. They're not – you know, eventually they're going to rot or they can spoil and be worthless. You know, and someone accidentally ate a bulb that was like incredibly valuable. He thought it was an onion. He ate it with his sandwich. It was, a, you know, <laughs> national news and stuff like that. But, 
<laughs> what came out of that was the first stock exchange in the world, the Amsterdam Stock Exchange. What came out of that was futures. What came out of that was options. Which came out of that is this whole panoply of tools to manage risk and to enable people to get incredibly wealthy, where you could bet one dollar or one guilder, one Dutch guilder, uh, they call it a hulden in Dutch, uh, and you could get 10 times or 100 times your money. Of course, you can, in the vast majority of cases, you lose your principal because you don't exercise your option. So what's interesting about this is that our bubble can be turned into something else. And if people believe in the United States, it can be more valuable. So here's the thing about Trump that I'm the only one who brings up that I know, but it's fascinating. It's absolutely fascinating. Trump had one of my favorite shows ever on the Science Channel. I watched thousands of hours on the Science Channel, but my favorite episode was the one he hosted because he asked the question, what's America worth? So he goes through right. all the sources of value of the United States, what's this worth and what's that worth. And in the end, he comes up with a number, but then he says, oh, and there's one last thing, and that's the value of the knowledge of all the people, that our expertise – and then, then, it, then it created this much larger number. So I have evidence of him, and only of him, of all the politicians who have ever lived in the United States, that he is aware of the need to educate, train, empower, and advance the American workforce because it will make America more valuable. So if he does what I think he will do when he – because of that mindset – that he had when he made that episode, which was made based on his, you know, what he wanted to do. The producers came to him and said, hey, what do you want to do? Would you like to do it? That This is the thing that he chose. He helped to write it. You know, I know producers of, of these Science Channel shows because I've been on the network myself a hundred times. So I have insider knowledge of his, his role. He wasn't just paid to read a speech and then leave. He, he was into it. So what you do when you want to maximize the value of America is, you ready for this? You're going to laugh. You want to I'm have ready. as many immigrants. You want to have as many immigrants as possible, as long as they are skilled immigrants. And so, one of the things that I think is really fascinating is that he might actually <laughs> increase immigration, net immigration, <laughs> but legal immigration. A legal immigration, because he said that he was going to do something that I can't believe Hillary didn't say she was going to do. He said, "I am going to triple." the number of people who work at the Immigration and Naturalization Service. Because if you've ever know, had friends or girlfriends or, or tried to do it yourself, get through to get your, your green card or get residency or you know, get any of your, your paperwork, your visas, it's a nightmare. It's basically the larger, more nasty version of the division of motor vehicles. Oh, and Jesus. nobody has ever left the division of motor vehicles and said, oh, that took less time than I thought, and that was a really good experience. <laughs> and nobody's ever said that about the INS either. But if you want to have a country that maximizes its, its net present value, you want to have the smartest people come in and find it very easy to come into our economy. And that is what I hope that he does, because that's what's good for the American economy. But more specifically, and that's very kind of fuzzy, here's what's not fuzzy. The United States has over 30 million dwellings, mostly houses, that are empty. And right. that, has all, that overhang, because prices are a function of supply and demand mediated by government, government policies. But 
if you have 30 million dwellings that are empty, eventually you're going to have a market crash. And if you send 11 million illegals out of the country, and let's just say that they're, you know, they're three to a dwelling, you're going to increase the number of unoccupied dwellings by more than 10%. And that's enough to crash the market. So I don't really see, uh, it's simply not true that he can't get them to leave. Like he could give me the job, I would know how to do it. But it's not, it's not that hard to get them out. But what is hard is to have the prices for real estate go up um, and have 11 million people leave. And that's why I don't think he will, he will do it in the way that he has led uh, his core supporters to think he will. Okay. So I love that you said that. So what, what part of his policy do you think he's going to follow through on and what part do you think he's not going to follow through on? I think that he is going to have uh, he's going to surround himself by cronies from the oil industry, and then all of these guys are going to go nuts. Sarah Palin as the Secretary of Interior, um, and what they're going to the, the the laugh of all this is that Trump has bought propaganda that is completely false on on in at least one area, and that is that there's somehow this big uh, restriction on the oil companies going and exploiting resources. And so the reality is this. There are 144 million acres of federal land that are effectively occupied by the oil and gas industry. They pay only $6 million a year. So during a period of time that there was 22,000 applications for an issuance of permits by oil companies to drill on federal lands. There were 120 applications to build solar panels on them. And the Department of Interior said, oh, we're overwhelmed by the demand for solar, so we're declaring a moratorium. In other words, under George W. H. W. Bush, under Clinton, under George W. Bush, under Obama, the oil industry had free reign to go over and drill and despoil all over the place. We've drilled over 6 million wells in this country, and we have fracked over 150,000 wells. Now, does that sound like there's, a, there's the ability to really go over and open the spigot so much more? And here's what's <laughs> funny. It's not profitable to do fracking. Um, and if we look, uh, even when oil prices were, were higher, you know, above $90 a barrel, the frackers – uh, went from having $100, million, uh, sorry, $100 billion in debt to having $300 billion in debt. So they increased their debt right, by uh, 200%. Do you know what, what their revenues increased by with that? Their revenues increased by 5%. Now, if you increase your debt oh, wow. by 200% and you increase your revenues by oh, 5 geez. and you don't increase your profits because you're unprofitable, and you're getting your main thing that you need to do this for free, which is water. So free water, right? Free water infinitely forever, and then the free right to dump it. So other people have to pay for water. I'm paying for water, and uh, you know, and I'm. I also I have to pay if I want to get rid of my trash. I can pay my building, you know, in the city of Santa Monica taxes, whatever. So they have these two big freebies, and they can't make money. But here's the thing. I have gone around speaking to governments, and Tony Seba and Mark Z. Jacobson have gone around. Just the three of us have gone around and have spoken to, mainly Tony, but people who manage over $30 trillion 
in wealth. And as a result, they know what we're telling them, which is at least Tony and I are telling them. By 2030, there won't be gas stations. There won't be an oil industry. There won't be a coal industry. There won't be natural gas. Traditional automobiles will be dead, etc. So here's the point. When you're building a pipeline today that will go online 2017, 2020, whatever, it won't be amortized. It's already a financial failure. It's like Trinity in the beginning of the first five minutes of the original Matrix movie when um, this guy says, well, you sent your men up there. And Agent Smith goes, your men are already dead. These companies behind the pipelines and the drilling, they're already dead actuarially because they won't be able to recover, amortize all their spending. And sooner or later, someone like me will have the ear of Trump and will show him the actual hardcore numbers that the oil industry is going to need, either need a bailout of over $700 billion or it will be gone. Now, this is the biggest core flaw of the Trump economic agenda. It's based on jobs. But there's a book called The Oil Curse, and this book looks at all 55 countries that produce and export oil out of 215 countries. And it says that on average, if you have oil, you are worse off than a country without oil. This is the oil curse. The oil curse is that any economy that tries to really exploit oil creates more problems than it solves. And part of the reason is because of the capital cost per job. It's $4.5 million per job. Do you know what it costs to make a job of, in the solar industry? $50,000. $50, so what you end up with is like Trump, Donald Trump has said, I want to create 25 million jobs. Awesome. Great. Wonderful. Try doing that at $4.5 million a job and every fracked well Instead of using 2 million gallons of water that gets mildly polluted because of the drilling muds, which can precipitate out, instead, they have much worse drilling muds. We don't even know the 500 chemicals that are in it. The EPA only tracks 13 chemicals. So there's poisoning of water and creation of health effects that nobody's even tracking yet. But sooner or later, somebody's going to put the money in see what all those chemicals are, then track all 500 of them, and then there's going to be a lawsuit that's comparable to or bigger than the tobacco lawsuit that cost the tobacco companies $25 billion. So you have a perfect storm of litigation from health impacts of lies and fraud and cheating and denying the Native Americans, the water protectors, their rights, and all this stuff that's just going to completely destroy the oil industry, and there's nothing that the federal government can do to stop the state governments, the counties, you know, the towns, the cities from enacting their legal rights. And so I just see that this whole idea of going and making America great again through the oil industry is going to be a huge catastrophic failure. So if you ask me, I, I, if the original question was, what is going to, you know, what's going to happen here? Um, I think that the oil part is one that he's going to have his biggest rude awakening about. There are others, but that's going to be the really big one. Wow. Okay. So I remember this was probably a year ago, and you were uh, you were talking about I think it was I think it was our first or second show, and you were talking about some of Trump's policies and how they were actually really really good. 
And, and I said, okay, I see the way that when you talk about it, they are actually really, really good. But I don't think he knows that, right? Do you think that he knows this? Or like, I, I'm, I'm just trying to figure out how do we get, because I know you're a, you've been an advisor to the, to the United States government and, and to other governments. And like, what do we have to do to get you in there to be able to explain it in this way? Because this is important stuff. Like, this is, this is the most important stuff. This is really important stuff. Um, well, uh, let's go, let's, let's just go down. Uh, I don't know about getting me in there. And part of me, I've been thinking, I was thinking about this this morning, which way can I be more useful by actually working in the administration, which means that you just have to shut up. Um, you know, I know that because I haven't talked about the projects I've done or actually be outside and say, this is good. This is bad. This is good. This is bad. And this could be better if you did this and Hey, you need to just tweak this here. And you know, not have my not have a a bridle and blinders on. I don't know, but I mean, there are so many people who are already inside the campaign. I didn't work on the campaign, so if it's if it's a matter of to the victor go the spoils, you know, there are other people who are just going to get their friends and, and buddies in. Um, I met Peter Thiel. I had dinner with him when I won the Economist uh, Award for the innovation most radically changed the world over the next ten years. And he was gracious enough to actually – I had a copy of my book, the first book on 4G, and he was gracious enough to insist on paying for it. So I got a picture with <laughs> us then, but I haven't had any communication with him since then, and that was six years ago. Um, but I, uh, you know, if I was offered a job with the White House, um, just like I was offered four different projects from the Obama administration, which I did, uh, the, the, most, the one that I'm most proud of is the, uh, that the presidential directive – that we end the U.S. embargo of Cuba, which is the subject of my book, Reconciliation. But I'm, you know, so I'm just thinking about, about how to make the biggest positive contribution to the U.S. and the world right now. Um, if you don't mind, do you, do you think we can go back to the list of the yeah. first 100 days? So, so how about this? I'll read it. I'll read the, um, I'll read the point, and then we get to talk about it. Okay, so okay, you already sure. read the first one. Yeah. So second, a hiring freeze on all federal employees to reduce federal workforce through attrition, exempting military, public safety, and public health. Yeah, exempting military, public safety, and public health. Okay, so my thought on that is that this is a good idea, but there are because we, we the ability to just go, uh, expand and expand and expand is something that the federal government itself doesn't it doesn't want people to endlessly expand. But having worked with the White House, they taught me that you can get around all of that stuff. And you want to know the techniques that I, I learned from the Obama White House for getting around oh, yeah. the caps? So Congress has put a ring fence around the White House. They can only have a certain budget and a certain number of people. It comes out to about, you know, about 600 to 650 people. That's all Congress wants them to have. So the first way – that the White House gets around that and the way that all the federal employees could get around this policy is detailing. They get someone from another federal agency to work at the White House, but they have the name of that agency. So one way to do it is that you have someone from Department of Defense detailed to the work with the White House, but they're getting paid by the Department of Defense, but they're working in the White right. House and doing things the White House tells them. The second way of doing it is through the um, – FFRDAs. 
the federally funded research and development agencies, RAND, which is just two blocks from me in Santa Monica, uh, uh, Inst uh, Ida, the Institutes for Defense, Anal the Institute for Defense Analyses, um, MITRE Corporation, M-I-T-R-E. So these are places where then within that there are institutes that are just doing projects for the White House. Again, it's not showing up on the White House full-time equivalent headcount. And then the third thing is that you can go and do these um, mid-career professional programs that are paid for by nonprofits like the American Association for the Advancement of Science. So this is a way of doing it. Now, I don't have a problem with the White House doing this. I'm just saying that every single federal agency can use the same techniques that the White House uses to have as many goddamn people as it wants doing whatever it wants. So the thing about the devil is in the detail or God is in the details, whichever aphorism you prefer. And I just don't see somebody who's not a detail person, as George Bush said, I don't do nuance, noticing this and telling this. So when I see some of these things in here, I have to just laugh. And I know that the people in Washington laugh because I grew up in Washington, D.C. You know, I went to elementary school and middle school and high school in Washington. My mother took me as a child to all these government meetings. And there are so many ways that the people who are not at the top can thwart the directives and get around them that it's just, it's just kind of funny. And so if, he ha if Trump surrounds himself with people who are ideologues, who have no practical experience of the kind of you know sneaky tactics that can get around these mandates, then he can say one thing and you know it, in his own mind be pure to his promise, but it won't come out even more than that. So I think it's very useful to say, okay, how many federal employees are there the day that Donald Trump takes office? And then say, all right, two things. One, does the to overall federal headcount go down? I am going to predict it won't, number one. Number two, will the headcount uh, of, you know, if you exclude those areas that don't have a cap on them, you know, public health and, and uh, um, health and the military. Well, if you look at the number of people who are in the military, then uh, we have a thousand foreign military bases. So any policy that doesn't say we're going to reduce military headcount is it doesn't make any sense to me because that's where, uh, where we have more people than we need. Like, let's just ask for a second. Do we really need a thousand foreign military bases if we're saying that Russia has one, which is the one that's in Syria, and that's too much? So one is too much for Russia. But it, so what does that mean if we use that same logic to ourselves? Do we really need a thousand military bases? And are we, are we declaring a moratorium on building new foreign military bases? I can tell you absolutely the answer to that is no, we are not. I know where the U.S. wants bases and where it's going to have the equivalent of bases. I can't really say it, not because of security clearance, but because you know I promised people I won't. But we're not stopping building military bases that we don't need. And you know, that's, that's another issue. So this is one that I have to say, this is, it, it's, not gonna, it's not going to work. And there's one last thing. We just look at Dick Cheney. Uh, Dick Cheney said, he, he put out a, a request for a proposal to, um, to basically uh, um, go and uh, centralize fuel, 
So centralized you know, fuel purchases, like have all the fuel purchases go through one organization. And then he basically gave the contract to himself at Halliburton. You know, he appointed the people who would choose that, and they chose Halliburton. So it's effectively, you can use contractors and you can use policies to go and send things to cronies. And, you know, if you have a choice between a federal employee doing something or a corporation that does it for an outrageous markup, it's not a net benefit to the U.S. And we've seen a couple examples of this. For instance, soldiers are no longer allowed to do their own laundry. They have to go and give it to a contractor in a small little bag, like let's say a potato chip sized bag, and they charge nine you know, big big bag of potato chips, not a not a tiny one, but it's still small for a laundry bag, and they charge ninety dollars a bag to do your laundry. I mean, this is of course a ripoff to the American taxpayer and a payoff to a person who's polit- politically connected. A second one is soldiers having to use Wi Fi in a tent will go in, and there's a full-time employee making 150000 a year just simply writing their name on a clipboard and then, you know, then signing them off. And let's say there's a, you know, I mean, let's say there's nobody in the tent. There's a person hauling down all that money. Well, you may not think, well, okay, but how many of these can there be? I can give you a sense. When the U.S. was looking for smart cards, it needed $3 million for the people who are in the armed forces, and it needed another $30 million for people who were able to access the the uh, the branch exchanges, the the, the P, you know the PXs on the bases where you get discount groceries, so basically you have an army of of contractors and dependents who, that's ten times the size of the force itself. So what's the point wow. of capping a federal labor force? Uh, and, and look at these numbers; they actually they're actually powers of ten. The president gets to appoint three thousand people. That's it. And then, so you have, you know, 3, 000, 3 million people in the armed forces and maybe 3 million people working in the federal government, like in, you know, paid by the federal government. And then 30 million contractors just related to the Department of Defense and its bases. If you don't have a policy that deals with the contractors, and if you don't say, you know, freezing the amount of money that goes to contractors and reducing it by 10% a year or something equally like that, the whole point of uh, freezing federal hiring is meaningless because 95% of the growth will be um, – you, you could call it the, the employment iceberg. Like I coined the term it's in the Dictionary of the Future, the Internet iceberg effect. 90% plus of the growth of the Internet is invisible because it's machine to machine and doesn't even go to humans. It's just machines talking to each other. Like we have the Internet of Things and sensor nets right. and stuff like that. You know, so you don't see it. Well, similarly, 90% of all the money that's going out of the federal government for people and things is not going to federal employees. So you have to freeze that also. That's my thought on the free, free hiring freeze. It's, it's just, it just reeks of naivete. Okay. Wow. Um, so just a, a quick side note. And I don't want to get too far off. So you give me a one sentence or two sentence answer. But one thing that a lot of people have been afraid of is Trump having the nuclear codes. And I was actually more afraid of Hillary having it, considering how much money she would make and her friends would make on starting a nuclear war. That's what Putin was afraid of as well. So so with with Trump and his uh, seemingly good ties with Putin, who would he launch a nuclear war at? 
he wouldn't. But there's a that this is one of those things that's a that makes me uncomfortable because it's an urban legend, and I don't know why people are lied to about this. First of all, do you know which there are 208 federal agencies? And when I'm talking about the government, I can tell within 20 minutes or so whether they really know what they're talking about because they don't because they, they if they don't ever use numbers. Like if you work in the government, you know the actual numbers of different things. So there are 208 federal agencies. Of those agencies, which one do you think controls the nuclear weapons? Department of Defense? Yeah, but see, that's what's so funny about it. They don't. It's not controlled by the Department of Defense. So you have this illusion that the president will just go and bark at the Department of Defense and they'll launch the weapons because they're all in charge of it. Actually, the U.S. government is built on checks and balances, and it's kind of a beautiful thing. And what they do is that they make sure that no one federal agency has the power to do things. So the weapons are controlled by the Department of Energy. Department of Energy, if the generals ever tried to use the nukes to threaten the U.S. and do a military coup, would just say, fuck you, and they wouldn't let them do it. Now, the military can go at and try to, you know, do all kinds of things, but then there's also the intelligence services which, you know, will not necessarily go with the military. So there's a DIA, Defense Intelligence Agency, but there are 16 other admitted federal intelligence agencies and there are ones that are not, you know, that you don't know the name of. Um and maybe other people in the government don't necessarily know them. So the bottom line is and you can read about this if you want in Gary Will's book, Bomb Power. There's so much speed that's needed to take action if we hear about a nuclear launch or some kind of, of you know, something happening, that there's a whole parallel government structure that can respond immediately. So I think it's debatable whether the president has the ability to do that or whether this power is also part of that check and balance and it's given to people whose names that we don't even know. So, I mean, you know, the United States doesn't do anything that's really, really dumb. And I think that, that President Obama would, if it were really, if he really had the nuclear codes and he was able to do whatever he wanted, I don't think he was, would be legally able to do what he did this past weekend which is to say that Donald Trump's Twitter account was taken away from him, and if you can't handle Twitter, you can't handle the nuclear codes. To me, the only reason he's able to joke about and put, uh, make it look like the United States is so out of control is if the president doesn't really even have control of those. He wouldn't joke about it because you're not allowed under federal law to do things like say that the United States may not pay its federal debt. Like that's not allowed for Congress people to do that, um, so it can be seen as as you know being like sedition. Um, I think that, and it's also possible that the policy around who has the nuclear codes and how they can use them is still changing and it's still being debated, and it still can be changed before Trump gets in office. But yeah, the, there's no I, reason I, for us to believe that something that's classified would be something that we would know about or we'd be able to talk about. Like whatever we're talking about, that um, that's not going to be the real policy for something that has to do with national security. Right. All right. Good call. Cool. I, I don't believe that Donald Trump can use nuclear weapons if he feels like it. I, you know, uh, and and I'm saying this not from a basis of having inside information, but but being able to look at how the U.S. government works and makes decisions. 
And right. look at what Hillary did. She said they had four minutes. Do you think they're going to leave something to somebody who might be taking a crap, you know, uh, or unreachable if this decision has to be made within four minutes? You know, I think, you think that Obama there, doesn't have phones by his toilet. I think that sometimes it takes more than four minutes for one man to make a decision, and then therefore the United States would not make a, a, a whole entire system like that dependent on one man. There would be an alternative to do it. Great. Awesome. All right. Thank you. Good answer. All right. Number three, a requirement that for every new federal regulation, two existing regulations must be eliminated. Yes. So first thing is, um, why not just go in and look at all the federal regulations? Like, for instance, you know, any kind of uh, and, and also state regulations, like many states have laws against sodomy on the books. Well, since gay marriage, then these are also states that have right to gay marriage. So, well, why not take all the laws that no longer apply and get rid of them? And yeah, but let's get rid of all the laws that we don't need first before this whole two existing regulations, because it's yeah. possible that people will just create fake laws just in order to try to specifically get rid of things that they don't want. And there's something that's very hodgepodge about this. So I like the idea that um, that before we pass any new laws, that we get rid of the worst 10,000 of them, you know, because we have tens of thousands of laws and stuff. So fine, find the worst 10,000 of them, and then you have a bank account for doing things. And or the first 500 or the first 50 or whatever, let's do something where we're separating out, passing some law and going, oh, I really want this law, like giving candy to all children. Okay, we're going to give candy to all children, and therefore let's get rid of the First Amendment and the Second Amendment. I mean it doesn't make sense <laughs> to, to pair these two things together. I think we should just get, get rid of the laws we, that are antiquated and don't need, and then and only then do we pass new laws. Agreed. But, and also, yeah. why, uh, why, why not just get rid of all the laws that are no longer applicable? Yeah, because sodomy is fun. All right, fourth, a five-year ban on White well, House. Well, that's, that's not why I said that, but okay. <laughs> five-year ban on White House, and yes, it is, and congressional officials becoming lobbyists after they leave government service. Yeah, that sounds great, though what's interesting on this cell thing is the use of contractors. And so and what does it mean to be, you know, to be a lobbyist, et cetera. But I think that that's that that's good. Um, and I think it's going to uh, what I really like is it makes it hard for for cronies to, you know, go and have a revolving door. Um, I'm interested to see how they enforce it, though. What do you, you know, how how many people have ever been put in jail for lobbying? I mean, I think of Jack Abramoff, and he's the only name that comes to mind out of the tens of thousands of lobbyists that have, you know, that are around. Yeah. So, how would you suggest clean it up? Because it's clear that it needs to be cleaned up. Well, let's go to the next one, and then I'll say this next one because this next one is the real acid test. Oh, great. Okay. This is the A this lifetime. is the one that is the. Yeah. Okay. Uh, fifth, a lifetime ban on White House officials lobbying on behalf of a foreign government. Yes. Okay. I think that's great, and I don't believe it will happen for a simple reason, because it will gut the Israeli lobby. And the uh, United States, according to others, um, is a colony 
of Israel. And just and the example given is that the British ruled India for 350 million. Uh, sorry, three, it ruled 350. Uh, well, 300 plus million people were ruled for 350 years by 10,000 people. And you don't have to control everything. You have to control what they eat, what they wear, etc. You just control the things that matter. And Israel controls U.S. foreign policy. And this is why, if you look at the United Nations votes, you find hundreds of votes, which are the whole world, against the U.S. and Israel backing each other up. So right. until this year, the votes, like on Cuba, were 189 to 2. You know, they were, the rest of the world was saying U.S. policy towards Cuba was genocide, but, you know— Israel is voting with the U.S. even though Israel in, – in, uh, in favor of the U.S. embargo, even though in practice Israel is a business partner of the Cuban government. It runs its citrus groves, which are bigger than Israel's uh, citrus groves that supply uh, Europe with citrus fruits over their winters. And so I, you know, I, uh, I would say that this also means you don't have dual citizens in the White House. So, for instance, Rahm Emanuel, chief of staff for Obama, is an Israeli-American dual citizen. It's like that's a conflict of interest. Well, uh, and, and when have you ever seen an Israeli-American dual citizen who did anything that favored the United States over Israel? I mean, point out one instance where something – you had to make a choice between what's good for America, what's good for Israel, where they chose the U.S. over Israel. It's no, it, there's no such instance because – the U.S., you can do anything, and you're not going to lose your citizenship. But in Israel, I mean, they all closely watch everything. So uh, I think a lifetime ban on lobbying on behalf of a foreign government, I love it. And this is a place where you can see who actually runs America as this is quietly done away with. So it's nice to have it there, but uh, it's not going to stay. So do you Donald think this Trump relationship not, with – Donald Trump is not more powerful than Israel and the Israeli lobby. So you don't think it's going to change? Uh, no, I don't. I think it's going to change for a lot of people, but it, there's going to be a carve out for Israel, and for you know, uh, and this is the funny thing. I mean, there are people who make a claim, and I don't. I'm not one of them, but I'm just. I'm trying to be in the interest of fairness. Who claim that Donald Trump and people in his campaign are lobbying on behalf of Russia? And so, you know, how do you determine whether someone's lobbying on behalf of a government if they're not officially registered as a lobbyist? So the way to get around this thing uh, is mm. that you just simply don't register as a lobbyist and you just, you know, hang out with a friend. Oh, yeah, we're just hanging out. Well, how do you stop people from doing that? You can't. So this is one of those things that is is just going to lead to people doing things with a different taxonomy, a different nomenclature. I don't believe that this will. This is enforceable. Oh boy, this is so funny. Politics are such a funny thing. All right, sixth, a complete ban on foreign lobbyists raising money for American erections. Uh, did you say erections as no. a joke? Oh, okay. No. Sorry, erections. that's what it sounded like. Uh, so a complete ban on foreign lobbyists. Okay, so if somebody is a dual citizen, um, are they a foreign lobbyist? Uh, so this is this is one of those things that's not well defined, and you can it's a loophole people can drive a truck through, and people will. Um, is George Soros a foreign lobbyist? You know, is Robert Murdoch or, or Rupert Murdoch? I mean, you know, when people have extensive connections, and let's just say that 
most of your business interests are outside the U.S. Coca-Cola, as an example, makes two-thirds of its money from out of the U.S. Most of the big oil companies are making most of their money from outside of the U.S. Are they foreign lobbyists? I mean, I would think that they are, but they're not going to be treated that way. Again, not enforceable, because, and, and people will play games with the taxonomy. Great. Okay. Awesome. Thank you. Um, sure. On, uh, okay. So uh, on the same day, I will begin taking the following seven actions to protect American workers. First, I will announce my intention to renegotiate NAFTA or withdraw from the deal under Article 2205. Yeah. Well, uh, I think that that's interesting, but this is Canada we're talking about. And uh, and Mexico, and it's if you want the people who are here illegally, mostly from Mexico, to leave, you have to make an economic boom of historical proportions in Mexico. So you can't just have a push from the United States. You must have, and primarily you must have, a pull from Mexico. So when I was saying you could give me the job of having all the illegal people leave – it isn't because I would try to go and make it horrible for them in America. It's that I would try to make it fantastic for them in Mexico. And I can tell you specific ways to do that in, you know, in another show because it's a much longer thing. But I spent you know, a lot of money going and meeting with Mexican government officials to tell them how to make Mexico a, such a paradise that a lot of these people would prefer to go back to Mexico and live there than to live in the United States as illegals who you know don't have that and uh you know it's it's actually a very scientific and economically viable plan i, so, I remember um, i remember they 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 didn't take you up on that offer do you do you have any idea why oh i know why because they they because it's conscious policy on the part of the mexican elites to get rid of the poor. Now, in the poor, oh. again, everybody has different definitions. This is why I keep using the word taxonomy over and over. Uh, they define the poor as people who don't have any land. So imagine a country where the elite own huge chunks of land, like a few families own you know, Cancun and Cozumel and big tracts of land. Do you really, 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 really want to have 50 million people without land where – Wealth is defined as land ownership. Hell no. You want them. You want as many of them as possible to just GTFO. That's their way of looking at it. So it's a conscious policy to get them out of there so that there are fewer people who can be around to have a people's power revolution and take it back. And they do this very specifically in one way. So up until very recently, the, U the Mexican government had a monopoly on oil and gas. Now, ammonia is made almost entirely through the Haber-Bosch process using natural gas. Are you with me? And ammonia is the com primary component of fertilizer. Uh, you add potash for root crops. You add phosphate for crops above the ground. And in Canada, five of the top six most profitable companies are, drumroll, fertilizer companies. So huh. control of the ammonia price is really key to the economy. So here's Mexico. Now, you'd think if they cared about the poor, they would do one of two things. They would either take a market price, like the price for ammonia would be the normal price for ammonia, right? Or they would make it below market, right? You make it cheaper to put fertilizer on. You make it – it's sort of a subsidy for Mexican agriculture. It's labor-intensive. They hire more people, uh, right? 
Mexico's government, with a monopoly on oil and gas, used the monopoly on gas to have a monopoly on ammonia, which gave it a monopoly on fertilizer, and they jacked up the price to 20 to 30 percent above the market price, making Mexican agriculture so fucked up that they import 44% of their food and 74% of their grain. Now, I talked to the Secretary of Agriculture. I know what I'm talking about, and I can tell you that he knew exactly what they were doing. He knew that they were making agriculture non-viable and importing it just so that they could get rid of their poor, just so they wouldn't have a people's power revolution. So what? now this is what I don't really understand about Donald Trump. I don't understand when he's supposedly advised by the smartest people in the world why he doesn't look at the root causes of these things and then call out Mexico like you have that whole campaign. Can you imagine what would have happened with all the media attention to him if he called out the Mexican government for overcharging farmers for fertilizer using their government monopoly just so that they could screw their poor? I think it would have had a completely radically different approach. And then if you have fewer people there, you don't have this flood of mules, of children who are carrying drugs for the Sinaloa cartel to Chicago where they have a deal with with the Chicago municipal government. And then he could have avoided this whole thing about Mexicans or rapists and all that stuff, and he could have had something that was more constructive while still being true and could actually solve the problem. So bottom line is you want to reduce the number of illegals in America, go to Mexico, uh, fund people in Mexico to do a class action suit saying the government is overcharged for fertilizer, have a massive payment that's due from the government where they have to just simply sell shares in Pemex and then pay the people who would have been engaged in agriculture. And the legal framework of this is already there. You know what it is? It's in Pigford. Pigford was something that I'm sure this will, will start to be exposed. So Steve O'Bannon is is the guy who's this you know the head of Breitbart. He started he he helped fund Andrew Breitbart to start it. And Andrew's last project that he was working on was something called Pigford. Pigford was Obama's way to pay off the African American community for their incredible support and votes, votes that Hillary didn't come anywhere close to getting. And it was basically reparations. But it was done in a sneaky way, which is by saying, if you would have farmed, but you didn't farm, then here's a giant payoff. And all you had to do was say that you were a farmer or your family would have been a farmer and and you were African-American and you'd get the money because of slavery. So we just take the Pigford language, translate it into Spanish, give it to the people, and then all the people in, in America who would have farmed but did not farm or would have worked on a farm – but they were screwed out of it by the monopoly mm. of the ammonia prices of Mexico get massive payoffs and you know like money that they could live on buy land and so on that is one of the ways that we can help the people to have money because it's not enough just to tell people get out i think that we should say hey here here's a hundred equivalent in pesos of a hundred thousand dollars and here is land that you can go and buy um, and here's where people have been corrupt, and you know because of their corruption, they have accumulated large land holdings, and you find a place for them to be able to do it. Because can you imagine the the backfill, the latent demand for a country that's importing 74% of its grain? Mexico could and should triple, quadruple, quintuple 
its grain production and its food production um, if it actually had the people and it charged the right price. I, I'm probably belaboring this point, but there's just so much contention around immigration that I want to show that there are intelligent systems engineering, market-based um, legal re, you know, redress of grievances and of harm through monopoly that can be pursued. And that's the proper use of the president's ability to convene and use its bully pulpit and not demonization of minority groups. Mm, that's really good. It's a really good point. So now what, so when he says he's going to, he's going to get Mexico to pay for the wall, there was, was there anything in what you just said about, about that? Something that maybe the elites know that, that no one else knows. Well, that yeah, my, what, what, the wall? It's very, it's relatively, um, that it, it's absolutely possible to build a wall. First of all, the wall would be smaller than the Great Wall of China, and China's economy, when they built that, was much, much, much smaller than the United States. What, 1%, 2%? You know, robots can do things. You can have all kinds of advanced construction techniques doing it, number one. Uh, Number two, um, it is a jobs builder, just like the Hoover Dam was a a job creator. Building dams, building infrastructure, doing all this stuff, is is it is a uh, the it's the WPA under um, President uh, FDR and under Franklin Delano Roosevelt that's part of the panoply of policies that helped us emerge from the Great Depression. Um, so it's absolutely possible to build a wall. It's absolutely a job creator to build a wall and a construction technique enhancer to build something so big to do it faster than the Chinese. And it is possible to get Mexico to pay for it simply by engaging uh, and putting tariffs on Mexican goods. But you'd have to uh, exit NAFTA in order to do that because you're not allowed to put tariffs on things under NAFTA. And I just think that uh, that if there is a popular backlash against the Mexican government for their engaging in fraud, and they also took shots at Trump and tried to uh, to participate in the American election, like we, we hear lots of complaints from Democrats about Putin trying to intervene. I think it would be a fun legal case to go and see people try to sue Russia for interfering in the American election and see the evidence there versus Mexico trying to interfere in our election. I would say that Mexico's uh, attempts to interfere in the uh, the American election are dwarf Russia's because Mexico actually tried to get its citizens here, its dual citizens, they can vote, by the way, to, uh, you know, to vote against Trump. I mean, that's interfering in our election in a very, very visible, non-disputable way. So Mexico, there are winners and losers of every election. And if you stay neutral, then you still can can have things change. But if you have actively and aggressively and illegally tried to prevent someone from winning, uh, you can you can expect retribution. And this has been the case for thousands of years. And Mexico can expect uh, to, you know, to take a hit from Trump's uh, taking revenge on them. Great. Awesome. Okay. Second, I will well, I don't think it's great. Wish- I don't think it's awesome. I'm just trying to be a, a, you know, talk about what Kissinger called realpolitik. 
I don't think it's good to have vengeance. I think it's good to forgive. So I'm not advocating this, but it's also the kind of thing that to the we have set up a system. We don't have a consensus system like Canada. We have a winner-take-all um, kind of system. That's part of the American way. And certainly Hillary Clinton would have gone after her critics uh, you know, had she won. So it's not anything that's unique to Donald Trump. But I will just say this, that even if we withdraw from NAFTA, we still need a new trade treaty. And I would, um, you know, so his thing, here's two points. I, I will announce my intention to ne- renegotiate NAFTA or to withdraw, but I think it will be renegotiated. It has to be renegotiated because, again, Trump has, has the stock market at an all-time high, and if he screws over Canada and or Mexico so that they have depressions, then that will be bad for U.S. business because it's almost like cutting off your nose to spite your face. We are one integrated social superorganism, and to hurt Mexico or to hurt Canada is to hurt the United States very, very significantly. The idea is to have the Western Hemisphere be so badass that we become the engine of growth for the rest of the world. And I'm just sorry that I don't see that language because either the Western Hemisphere rises as a whole or it falls as a whole because we're, there's no place where you can say here's where we're autonomous from each other. We're not. It's good. It's good. Thank you. Okay. Second, I will announce our withdrawal from the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Yeah, that's good because the TPP allowed people to pollute as much as they wanted without retribution, and it allowed corporations to sue for what they viewed as loss based on government policies. So someone has an oil spill and you find them, and then they sue you and say, well, you cost me a loss by finding me because I made this pollution. The whole thing was filled with logical insanity, and it's it's the kind of thing only a puppet would sign or promote. And Hillary Clinton said very clearly in her emails that you have to have a public position and a private position. And, you know, she was a tool of the corporation. So this is a place where America dodged a bullet and everyone should acknowledge it. This is absolutely the right thing to do. And I also know, because I'm very close to people in Malaysia, that when they were in Malaysia in Kuala Lumpur, that the Chinese had a representative who was there who was like looking like the cat that ate the canary, laughing at the stupidity, like, like at the dinner table, drinking and eating and laughing at the stupidity of Americans because China was going to be snuck in to TPP, um, and that was being hidden from the American people. So, the, you know, you, you, we would never have been – I mean, imagine the Chinese government, which runs and owns the majority stock in its biggest corporation, having its corporations continually and endlessly suing the United States just to destabilize it because you know there isn't a distinction between corporations and government in China. And TPP was a supercharging of corporations that effectively allowed countries that really wanted to push the envelope, like China, to to destroy – the financial viability and any kind of limitations on corporate power. So TPP really, really had to go. And Trump is this. This alone would be a good reason to have a Trump presidency. By itself, it justifies it. Are you there? Okay. So uh, Ben is in Costa Rica, and sometimes his internet goes out. So I'm going to assume that his internet's gone out till he tells me. Differently. Sorry, I'm, um, back. I'm back. 
Okay, good. We had, Great. So we, now we, we, had, we had a caller, so I was having a conversation with the caller to see if uh, what kind of a question they had. Um, so great. Okay. Uh, so do you want to jump into the third one or, um, do you want to keep talking about the TPP? And no, no let's go to the third one. Let's great. go to the third one. Okay. I will direct my secretary of the treasury to label China a currency manipulator, which it is. So yeah, we- it is, but so is the U S the U S also manipulates its currency. So, you know, there's a point at which we should just define what a currency manipulator is. Right. And then the United States should stop being one, and then it should start talking about other people. Remove the moat in your uh, the beam in your own eye before you, you know, scold the moat in your neighbor's eye. I mean, this is right. where 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 I really where we lose credibility and legitimacy is if we point a finger at somebody where we're also gaming the system, and if we're buying our own U.S. Treasury bonds and we're specifically, you know undermining the value of the dollar uh, just to go and play games, then that's currency manipulation. I mean, paying, you know, for the Federal Reserve to deny an audit, to deny Congress an audit, uh, and to give, for Congress to give the Federal Reserve a hundred-year charter renewal, a hundred-year charter renewal, which happened during the Obama administration with no debate, that's currency manipulation. Cool. So we're at uh, we're about 70 minutes. Uh, we can go as long as you want. We can do 90 minutes. We can do two hours. We're on uh, number four. <laughs> so, yeah, let's just go through the list. Okay, cool. Uh, fourth, I will direct the Secretary of Commerce and U.S. Trade Representative to identify all foreign trading abuses that unfairly impact American workers and direct them to use their American and international law end those abuses immediately. you believe he'll do that? Yes. I think that people should go on Google Smoot Hawley, S-M-O-O-T hyphen H-A-W-L-E-Y. And because this was the, this is the, the recreation, the resurrection from the dead of one of the worst things that the U.S. government ever did. So keep in mind that we have alliances with other countries. And what, that, what this does is the nations that, that do the most to try to give us the products and services and colors and shapes and sizes and weights and flavors and tastes that we like the most and fuck them and try to hurt them uh, commercially. So, you know, foreign trade abuses, I mean, it, it, you know, it's, to what, what abuses are we talking about? These are subjective things. So where Trump right. is strongest – is when he takes something that objectively you can look at it and say, that's just somebody somebody who's a supervillain trying to screw other people for his own profit or his own military gain or whatever. But where it's all totally subjective in opinion and where you know what I would love is if I saw that, and it will also – we will look at abuses of the U.S. of using the fact that we're the world's largest economy and using this to exploit – you know, smaller, more vulnerable nations and to stop those two, then it would begin to have the right vibe. Then it would begin to have the right sense of legitimacy. But if the United States starts from the position, we are perfect. We, our shit doesn't stink. We don't make any mistakes. We never abuse our power. We never do any of those things. And, you know, if we, if we clean up our own act first, and let's just start with the elephant in the room. 
we have a thousand foreign military bases in other nations. <laughs> Do you think that other people want U.S. sailors and soldiers and airmen and Marines coming and drinking in their bars and having sex with their women and occasionally having a rape or whatever? Do you think it's fun to have a foreign military base? Would you like to have a foreign military base for the U.S. right next to you in Costa Rica? Would you like that? Nope. That's why we're here. So, right. So I wouldn't. No, I wouldn't want to have a. I don't want a Chinese military base being opened up in Santa Monica. I don't want a Russian military base. I don't want an Iranian or a Cuban military base. So the biggest trade manipulation of all is having a thousand foreign military bases around the world. That is a trade manipulation. So it's one of those things where the rest of the world says, are you freaking insane? You control the trade routes of the world. You, could, you have your navy out there controlling the world. You know, Russia barely has one water, one port that isn't frozen in the winter, right? They have that. They, they took the part of Ukraine to make sure that they had ocean access around Crimea. And otherwise, they have, you know, all their navies are iced in in the winter. And, yeah, you can have ice-breaking ships, but it's not like a rapid deployment force. So the United States has to have some empathy to say that it's like uh, – like I saw a woman last night walking across the street yanking her small dog. The dog wouldn't have weighed more than two pounds. And this woman is just yanking the dog and, like, stretching its neck, and I'm sure the dog is going to die. And another time I saw this really heavy woman with rollerblades with her dog roll her rollerblades over the dog's foot and break the dog's leg. Okay. And I just Jesus. think, you know, and it just, and I, and I was out with a friend walking along. There was a guy with his pit bull, and he was torturing his pit bull. And I just think, like, and the dog is howling in pain, and a friend, didn't, you know, went over. He, he looked like a gangbanger, and a friend of mine, it's like he's picking a fight with him, and I'm just going, Jesus, just call the cops. Don't pick a fight with him. If he's willing to torture his own dog, he has no problem capping your ass. It's like I, I had a talk with her. So the United States is so big and so powerful it doesn't realize that we warp space around us people said that steve jobs had a reality distortion field well think of the united states our military power and control of the world's trade the pax americana warps all of this to our advantage but what we think is oh well that's just natural that's just the way the world is so let's forget about all that and let's just start with what you're doing wrong and so there's just a part of this is just it's just bullying and bullies never ever ever have somebody do things out of genuine cooperation and love they they have it done because someone fears them but meanwhile they conspire to kick them in the ass later and get their revenge and so we're just setting up the grounds for the whole world to unite against us and i don't like that yeah good call okay next one i think is is uh your favorite this one makes the most sense Fifth, I will lift the restriction on the production of fifty uh, $50 trillion dollars worth of job-producing American energy reserves, including shale, oil, natural gas, and clean. Well, okay, this is the the economic ignorance of this point is almost <laughs> infinite. Like Einstein said, there are two things that are infinite: the universe and human stupidity. And I'm not sure about the universe. And this is one of those things that says that because first of all. It's um, oil uh, – if solar – solar is growing about 40% a year. So solar in 2014 was 1% of our electricity. And electricity is about one-third of our energy use. This year – so every – at 41% – at 36% growth, 
you know, which is less than the actual growth. Solar doubles every two years. So in 2016, that solar will this year from you know if it was one percent in 2014, solar's two percent. In 2018, it's four percent. In 2020, um, it's eight percent. And if you go through that math, by 2024, solar is 32 percent of our electricity. And we get rid of the dirtiest source of energy first. So coal as a source for energy has gone from 50% to about 15% in the, last, in the last few years, like within the Obama administration. It might have even been all within his second term. And so coal is going to be dead by 2024. It's insane to try to have economic growth of an industry that you can actually predict will be gone, even without any carbon tax. Even without keeping our agreement under COP21, even without the whole public opinion of working on global warming and the damage caused by global warming, which I'll get to in a minute. And so then if you go that then in 2026, you have 64 percent of our electricity produced from solar. And this is not counting wind, tidal, all those other kind of things, just solar. Then you end up with eliminating natural gas. And then you have 256 percent of our energy, you know, so you're not just electricity, but everything, and it's going to be accelerated by Elon Musk buying, uh, having uh, Tesla buy uh, Solar City, having these uh, shingles that are the same price as regular roofing things and so on, so that you effectively, right. you eliminate the oil industry just from all that. But there's more. We have self-driving cars. 30 companies are coming to market with that technology. Every self-driving car, and they'll all be electric, every self-driving car replaces 15 cars. So that the statistics from Tony Seba, my colleague and lecturer at Stanford, are that we produce 72 million automobiles a year. And it, just a few years ago, uh, like, like I think during the Bush administration, one out of every six jobs was auto industry related. So it's a lot. The auto industry will collapse from 72 million cars a year to six to eight million cars a year. This is why Elon Musk is wrong when he says Tesla will increase 50% a year and it will be worth $700 billion, you know, at some point in the late 2020s. No, it's going to be smaller. Uh, the auto industry will be smaller than it is today, and they're going to be, you know, every company is going to be making self-driving electric cars, and it will be very hard to differentiate it. And it will be impossible if you don't have complete cooperation with the government uh, automation, access to the, the materials for the batteries, I don't think will be uh, standardized on lithium batteries at that point because there isn't as much lithium as there is other things that are, that are going to be less toxic. Um, but the bottom line is that it's insane in a world with a, a collapsing automobile industry, uh, electric cars being available as of the first year of the Trump presidency for less than $30,000 that are uh, charging network everywhere. In other words, oil is going nowhere but down. And if you look at the uh, – I put up a chart. I just gave – I give talks to governments around the world about what they have to look at. And if you look at a chart, if there's certain cost of producing oil. So I showed the Canadians that it's insane to try to produce tar sand oil because it's like $75 a barrel. And every one barrel of tar sand oil you produce wastes 50 barrels of, of water. So when Trump says $50 trillion worth of job-producing American energy reserves, every part of that is false. It's not $50 trillion worth because when you increase the production of U.S. 
coal, oil, and natural gas with the demand declining. What happens when you spike the supply, but you reduce the demand at the same time? What happens? Ben, are you there? Oh, sorry. I was reading the next question. I was looking for a good oh, question. Oh, okay. Well, basically, then I'll, <laughs> then I'll answer it. The prices collapse. Now, if the prices collapse where the cost, the, the, the price that what you can get as a producer is below your cost of production, even if water is free, well, then there's, you just lose money. So effectively, what I love about this policy is the opposite of what Donald Trump and his oil industry advisors uh, think. This is the policy that will collapse the oil and gas and coal industry. My only mm. concern is that they're going to try to get a bailout. And so what I say is people should right now be putting out petitions. And you know, if you're going to march in the streets for something, march against any kind of subsidy or bailout for the oil, gas, and coal industry because – and I think I am the most accurate futurist. Uh, I don't have any major mistakes in 30 years. I will just tell you this. It is coming during the Trump presidency that they will ask for an enormous multi-hundred billion dollar bailout after they poisoned our water. And they're going to continue to demand water for free for creating earthquakes. And, I, it, you know, the dumb the, – the, the stupidity of this particular policy is immense because of what happened in Cushing, the Cushing incident, incident. The Cushing incident should be front page news and the whole world should be talking about it. Do you know what happened? Do you know about this? No, no. Okay, do you know what Cushing, Oklahoma is? No. It is the pipeline interchange capital of the world. All mm. these gas pipelines interchange there, so you can basically have gas you know, being traded from this place to that. It's what makes natural gas you know, commodity work. And if you look at the pipelines for oil and gas in the United States, the last I used to have this map in my wall because I used to be in this industry – at one point, and I can't, I don't know what it is now, and I don't, because we we are transparent with our numbers, other people are not. But we had more miles of oil and gas pipeline in the United States than the rest of the world put together, right? This is one of our crown jewels. It's one of our great assets. Is the ability to deploy natural gas anywhere in the, from anywhere to anywhere, right? It's a real asset, and all the interchanges are in Cushing, and the complete amoral morons who are fracking in Oklahoma are causing earthquakes and they caused oh, a five to 5.8 earthquake in Cushing, Oklahoma and damaged the pipelines. And if they keep fracking, if they keep injecting water that's from the fracking in it, they're going to have an earthquake that destroys the pipeline interchange and collapses the natural gas industry. Now, does that sound like the kind of job-creating industry that is going to be the basis for an economic boom to you? No. I mean, how, how can you – it is the worst possible basis for going and trying to create 25 million jobs because if you base it on something that has a single point of failure and that you don't – it's like effectively the frackers have become more likely to be economic terrorists than the supposed terrorists who are out there. The, the pipeline interchange is much more likely to be destroyed by the frackers than it is by ISIS. But even then, as we're putting attention on this, if somebody really wanted to take out the U.S., all they would have to do, the U.S. economy, is they would have to take out that interchange or our pipelines. 
with solar, good luck trying to go over and with a hammer and break everybody's solar panels. In other words, you have greater <laughs> anti-fragility, greater economic re- – yeah, they're going to block out the sun. Well, that's actually how the humans beat the robots in the Matrix is we blocked <laughs> out the sun because they were solar robots. So that's very funny. Exactly. Okay. So, cool. you, uh, so yeah, you said you wanted to wrap awesome. up. Yeah, so is there, do you have any uh, last thoughts, any last, uh, any last pleas, uh, any, any last little bits of information that you feel like people need to know? Yeah, I think that there's two things. One, that I think that we should now all agree that we should uh, get rid of the Electoral College and we should have the winner be the person who gets the most votes. Um, it's like, well, you know, I think every four years, whoever loses the election, if it's related to electoral, I mean, every time there's an election where you have one candidate lose the popular vote, um, but win through electoral college, you have the loser say, oh, let's get rid of the electoral college. And right. for Democrats, I have to just say, boy, how dumb can you be? They In this millennium, they have lost not one but two different elections by winning the popular vote but losing the Electoral College. So you remember, even with the uh, Miami Cubans cheating on the vote, giving George Bush the 537 fake votes that he needed to beat Al Gore in Florida and get its 27 electoral votes at the time, it's 29 now, um, they still, you know, Al Gore still won the popular vote. And it's my belief that you can't really call yourself a democracy without having the majority of votes win. Why should people you know, in California who are not Democrat have their vote automatically not count? And I know a lot of people in California said, oh, I'm not going to vote because if you're not voting Democratic, what's the point? Your vote isn't going to matter. It'll be lost in a sea. I think every vote should matter. I think everyone should go, whoa, the last election was decided by such a tiny fraction of the United States, like less than 1% of the people. So I better vote if you want people to vote. But ultimately, I don't believe in that democracy makes sense. I want to have a system that's a combination of artificial intelligence and equitocracy, but that's a, that's a show we've touched on in the past, and I hope that we can do in the future. Yeah, great. So anybody that wants to actually hear more about different governing styles, uh, that was our last show, and I thought it was fun. That was a good one. And I'm looking forward to our next show too. This has been um, this has been fascinating. I lo- always love your uh, I always love your insights. You're definitely more qualified to talk about this and, and more knowledgeable than 99.99999% of the shit that I read all over the place. So it's, well, there's it's one an honor one last thing. There's one last thing that that if it happens, it will change. America forever. If we can continue ending the U.S. embargo of Cuba, that will give us medicines we don't have now at an almost free price because Cuba charges almost nothing for its medicines and they have analogs for most of the big things. But this idea that there are 4,000 life-saving drugs waiting approval at the FDA and just having a wholesale uh, directive from the president to just speed up their approval but then put a big fat warning label on it and test and see who's using it. So Caveat emptor, let the buyer beware. If you want to use this experimental treatment, you can. And this is the way, place where Donald Trump comes the closest to transhumanist ideals, which is that you, should, you own your body and you should be able to try things out. And in fact, the way that we will get knowledge of whether something really works is if we let different people try it um, because we have too many 
fakery, fake data. And if people actually try it and they, we see how, what happens to them, then, we can, then that can be there to save the whole world. Uh, and if someone wants to take a, if you if you have a terminal diagnosis, you're going to die in three months. How is it helping you to deny you to be able to take a medicine? I don't get that. So this part is also another reason I'm very happy for the Trump presidency. Um, and I guess that's all we have time for. So thank you for having this session, Ben. Enjoyed it. Great. Beautiful. Thank you. And so, you know, one thing I would just like to say that to everybody is the, the, the biggest thing that I'm seeing here is the possibility for something new the possibility for something new. I mean, it doesn't it last, you know, I don't, I don't know how many decades, but there hasn't been actually that huge of a difference in uh, the Pacific president made compared to what I think is, is possible right now. And I think we've got to get, you know, we've got the racism under control. That, that is not okay. Um, and I think it's up to, it's up to all of us to hold Trump accountable for all the, the good things that he's actually capable of doing. So thank you all for listening. Thanks for, thanks for being the, uh, the, min- the minority, staying informed with uh, the best information. We'll see you next week. Thank you. Have a great week. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.